If you ask any executive who should be responsible for revenue, sales or operations, everyone's going to say sales, right? Yeah. But, and, and it's not just what people think, it's what people do. You know, the, the finance will go to sales and say, look, how much revenue do you think you can generate next year? And sales will scratch their chins and think about it and talk to customers and do forecasts and, and so on. And the underlying assumption is that the sales department generates revenue. But it doesn't take more than about two or three minutes of exploration. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Justin Roth Marsh. Justin's the author of a book titled The Machine, a radical approach to the design of sales function. And he's founder of Ballistics, which is a sales process engineering and re-engineering consultancy. And in this conversation from the archives of the Sales Enablement Podcast, you can hear why I really enjoy having Justin on the show, because he challenges so much of the conventional sales orthodoxy, if you will, and he does it in such a very thoughtful fashion. So in our conversation, we talk about why sellers should shift their focus from conversion rates to opportunity flow. Justin and I dive into why he believes conversion is antagonistic to deal flow. We dig into why he believes that for most sales teams, their conversion rate is already impossibly high. And the constraint they face in increasing sales is that their opportunity flow is dangerously low. And we get into the three factors, three main factors that Justin sees in his work that are suppressing opportunity in most sales teams. So we get into this and much, much more. But before we get to Justin, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also leave us a review and give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you for that. All right, let's jump into it. Justin, welcome back to the show. Andy, thanks for having me back. So, um, you and I were just talking before we started recording. You're actually, you know, we're here just after the turn of the year. And uh, you're the first person I've talked to who's, who's uh, out flying around doing, doing business. Yes, I am. Internationally, not just domestically. But I, like we were saying before, I'm lucky because I was one of the sort of first or second batches of people to get COVID. So, um, I'm a little bit more relaxed about that than the rest of the rest of the population is. And how did that experience go for you? Well, it was annoying. It kept me off the tennis court for, I think, three days. Um, so you had a pretty mild case yeah. then. Well, I, I had what I thought was a cold, and then uh, then I got a fever. And uh, I, I, I still didn't realize I had it until I lost my sense of taste. Uh, and then, I knew, of course, I knew I had it. So right. I went and got tested. And I think at the time it took three or four days to get the results back. But by the time the results were back, I was when the actually when the doctor rang me to tell me he had it, he interrupted my tennis lesson, <laughs> and uh, and and he said to me, "Look, how are you feeling?" I said, "Well, I, I said to be tr truthful, you're interrupting my tennis lesson. I feel just fine because uh, it, so it had already it had already gone, uh, and the symptoms uh, were residual symptoms had disappeared. My taste was back like four days after that. So. Okay. It was, I think, pretty mild. Although I know people who've had it even milder. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I said you're very fortunate in that regard. Um, so, so what's the? So you said you're out in the Midwest, uh, not too far. You're in Milwaukee, not too far from my hometown of Madison. Um, so you're presenting to groups. Yeah. So I do a lot of presentations to Vistage groups. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, with Vistage, they'll generally fly me in, and a few, and I'll speak to a few groups in the one trip. So I'm speaking to two groups in in uh in milwaukee on this trip uh and, and i got back i was in columbia just before uh just before christmas i ran a series of 
workshops, six six straight days of workshops, I think, in uh, in uh, Medellin or Medellin, uh, mm-hmm. Colombia. Yeah. Wow. So I'm back in the saddle. You are. You are <laughs> way more than than most people I know. So um, yeah, hopefully 2021 is the year when most of us get back. Uh, Back to doing what we liked. Well, um, I, hope so. I hope so, because if it's not, it's going to be the year we all get to experience bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been, uh, yeah. It's so hard to predict, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, it's, I mean, COVID's been, COVID's been good for us. It's it's actually caused us to have a, a, a big year. But I think I, I, I would hate to gamble on that luck lasting forever. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's been opportune for us because we've been preaching th- this idea of moving sales inside for the last 24 years. And and all of a sudden, companies have been forced to do that, whether they agreed philosophically or not, that it was a good idea. And obviously, we've benefited from that because we're the obvious folks for them to talk to. Yeah, yeah, got it. Um, well, so if people, if anybody listening to this has listened to my past conversation with Justin, you know that <laughs> I love talking with him because... Uh, he has a very unique perspective on many things about sales. Uh, oftentimes, they might appear to be contrarian, um, which is, I think, more a voice of what we we need in sales. I mean, it seems like we're, I don't know, I mean, you the same feeling that there's this just sort of massive drive to conformity in sales? Well, there is. And the reason there's a massive drive towards conformity is... Or mediocrity. <laughs> Well, I, conformity probably isn't a bad isn't a bad word, and and I think there is a drive to conformity. There's a drive for people to embrace the orthodoxy as an act of faith, and the reason there's a drive to embrace it as an act of faith is because the whole orthodoxy is built on very very questionable assumptions, and people tend to get people tend to work themselves over into a religious fervor over things they don't quite believe in or they're struggling to believe in. Nobody. Nobody, nobody gets evangelical about the fact that the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Mm. Hard, <laughs> you know, be hard to build a, to, be hard to energize a congregation around that proposition. But um, the, 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 there is a, a, a drive to conformity around sales ideas because a lot of them they don't they, they don't stand up very well to scrutiny. Well, let's let's dive into something. What are what's one or two of the key? Uh, I'll give you my favorite one right now. Okay. If you ask any executive who should be responsible for revenue, sales or operations, everyone's going to say sales, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and it's not just what people think; it's what people do. You know, the finance will go to sales and say, "Look, how much revenue do you think you can generate next year?" And sales will scratch their chins and think about it and talk to customers and do forecasts and and so on. And the underlying assumption is that the sales department generates revenue. But it, it doesn't take more than about two or three minutes of exploration, and, and I'll walk you through the process of yeah, that to prove that it's absolute BS. And it's not just it, – it's like obviously BS. And if any, anybody stopped for just a minute or two to ask a few simple questions, it would you – know, you'd expose it as BS, the idea that sales generates revenue. So I'll ask you the questions. The first question is, if you're a typical business – and you let's say you're going to do ten million dollars in revenue in 2021. That's your expectation. Mm-hmm. How much of that ten million dollars in revenue do you think is going to be existing customers repurchasing, as opposed to brand new customers purchasing for the first time, or existing customers purchasing things that are materially different from what they normally purchase? Um, <laughs> lots of categories there. 
I would say generally, I would say generally sort of two thirds from existing customers. And exactly. So right. two thirds repeat business and one third, and that's one third either brand new accounts or existing accounts buying brand new stuff. So they're in essence new accounts. Yeah. Yeah. So 70 to 80% is the answer that everyone gives me always, 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 except in some project environments that sell one-off big projects. Sure. But in every other case, the number is I get is 7 or 80%. So that means of the $10 million we're expecting to book next year, 7 million of it is going to come from existing customers repurchasing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if salespeople are responsible for that, that means that we think that salespeople should be responsible for retaining accounts, right? Well, they're not in many cases these days. So yeah, go ahead. But we, th- we 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 would have to think that in order for us to believe that salespeople should be responsible for residual revenue, we'd have to think that you know that they at least influence it. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense. And in most organizations, salespeople do own accounts, and 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 they are credited, and in many cases, compensated for um, that residual revenue. Um, so if we then ask ask the question, well. Why do accounts stay? The easiest way to ask that question is to flip the question and ask, why do accounts leave? Now, it turns out if you look at why accounts, if you look at why businesses lose accounts, in most businesses, the three most common reasons in descending order of frequency are poor operational performance. Mm-hmm. You know, the company breaks its promises, right. number one. Number two is pricing, too expensive. Number three is product, you know, insufficient range or competitors have a product that's technically out, technically performing better or whatever the case is. They're the pro- three reasons. But three is different than one. So one could be the product just didn't perform to expectations when you said yep. the company broke its promises. Or it wasn't, and more commonly, it wasn't delivered on time. Okay. Poorly implemented, whatever, right. It could be it was broken when it was delivered. The same thing. Um, okay. It broke its promises. Yeah. Now... Which of those three are salespeople responsible for, or which of them do they directly influence? Uh, none. No. Oper- operations is responsible for all three of those. So now, just a clarification: are you are you equating uh, operations with customer success? Customer service, yes. No, no, customer success. As most SaaS companies have, they've got. Yeah, most SaaS companies well, take their existing account base and and turn it over to customer success to manage all the upsells and renewals. Kind of so customer success. So customer success is normally used to refer to the team that's responsible for onboarding new customers, but then they hand them off to help desk or customer service once they're onboarded. So the customer success. At least in the SaaS companies I've been exposed to, their job is to get the new customers properly hooked, so to get them using all of the features, so that they can then, yeah. But increasingly, they are responsible for all that renewal revenue, customer success teams. I see it in in SaaS companies. So that'd be sort of your operations thing. They're not sales people. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Do they li- do they live within the operations department? Do they answer to head of operations, or do they answer to head of sales? It's a great question. So getting back to your original point is where should they report? Yeah. I think it's um, the answer is both. Well, <laughs> no, no, I'm saying in, in the same company it's not both, but you'll see different companies yeah, oh, in I operations and some in in sales. Yeah. yeah. So my point is that it it simply doesn't make sense to to make sales, to hold sales accountable for revenue. Operations should be held accountable for revenue because of the, the, seven, the $7 million we're planning to book next year, 
the the part of the organization that has the biggest influence over whether or not we're going to book it is not the sales department it's the operations department yeah, i'm just laughing cuz yeah i'm thinking about that is that yeah i mean i know companies that have moved just recently have moved customer success under under sales and just thinking about your what you're saying it's like yeah they're responsible for the lion's share of revenue shouldn't it be the other way around hmm now, the, to go one step further, if uh-huh. we're looking for incremental growth, I would argue that incremental growth is also going to come from operations, not from sales. For example, if you supply fasteners and you supply you know, Phillips head screws and flat screws, do you really need a salesperson tapping a customer on the shoulder and say, do you, do you, you, know, you know we sell uh, bloody whatever they're called, the star head screws as well? Phillips heads, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. it's 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 not necessary if 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 you if you want incremental growth if you want your existing accounts to buy a bit more you know a few more licenses or a few different types of screws you don't need salespeople involved in those transactions if if you want that incremental business the best way to get the incremental business is to do a good job of you know delivery pricing product and, and it should be operations responsibility and and the responsibility of sales should not be revenue in general it should be explicitly New business revenue, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and that means we need two different calculations. We need to account for revenue and hold operations accountable to that, and then we need to take new business revenue and we need to gross it up for the lifetime value of customers. Of well, each where new business is concerned, each initial trans transaction represents an annuity, the acquisition of an annuity. If you know, if you if you right. sell a new SaaS client, or if you if you go to an existing customer and sell them a new category of service, that's an annuity. So what you should be doing is you should be saying, well, the net present value of this annuity is is seven, eight, twelve times the value of the initial transaction. So uh, where sales is concerned, we're going to take the value of those initial transactions. We're going to gross them up to uh, to lifetime value, uh, to net present value. And and that's what we're going to hold sales accountable for. But they're two different numbers calculated in two different ways, and they can't be added together. Hmm. They okay. shouldn't be added together. They should be always kept apart. Interesting. Yeah, I'm processing as you're <laughs> as you're you're talking. And if you don't do that, it leads to bad decisions. So here's an interesting one. Sure. In, many, so many of our many of our clients, if operations does an extraordinary job of doing its job delivering on time, product range, pricing, you, the organization will naturally get incremental growth, naturally get incremental growth. And in fact, in a reasonable size organization, the, vo- the volume of incremental growth will be sufficient to dwarf new business revenue. Yeah. In other words, the, the new can, business revenue, will, canceling. Yes. It'll, be lost in, yeah, it'll be lost in the noise. It will be indistinguishable. So unless the organization goes to the trouble of recognizing new business revenue and grossing it up to, 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 to net present value, the, the value that's been added by the sales team will be invisible, lost in the noise. So we're holding salespeople accountable for something they have virtually no control over. And in the one area where they're actually adding value, we don't go to the trouble of making that value even visible. Hmm. Someone should go to jail for that, shouldn't they? <laughs> I mean that's serious misconduct. If you're responsible for running a business, and you know you, you, th- th- that's the level of care that you've applied to, you know, you know, 
uh, calculating the economics of your own business. So you still, okay, I'm just sort of thinking this through. So have you extended that through to say, okay, then what's the impact of revenue of, instead of focusing on your churn rate, but focus on percentage of new business of, as a person, per new business, a percentage of the total. I mean, if that number drops below a certain point, then you're going to have an ultimately have a growth issue. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure you need to compare. I'm not sure it's necessary to compare the new business as a percentage of the repeat business, because in different stages of the evolution of the organization, that ratio is going to change dramatically. I mean, if you looked at, say, Amazon Web Services, to try and Mm -hmm. use use a tech example, you know, today, as opposed to AWS 15 years ago, those numbers would be dramatically different. Sure. Well, I was talking about something more mature, but right, yeah. Yeah, I think the issue is, well, at at what rate are we generating new business revenue? relative to the rate at which we intend the rate at which we need to to hit our growth targets i think that you should essentially ignore revenue if you're discussing sales and growth and talk about what talk about well it, 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 you I, i'm what i'm saying is if you want to have a conversation about growth you shouldn't be talking about revenue in the, in in the traditional sense you should be talking you should be focusing exclusively on the the new, the net, net the net present value of the new business one Lifetime contract value. Yes. Yes. And that should be completely separated out from day-to-day revenue. The two should never be mixed. And so for... Except for when you do your tax. So so the only time you need to blend those numbers together is when when you submit your tax to the tax office. Aside from that, those numbers should never be added together. When it comes to making business decisions, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a single decision that would require that you add those numbers together. Yeah except compensation of the chief revenue officer. But hang on, now you've got one person. (laughs) Uh, So chief revenue officer, the the, the title is, that that person is mistitled. They should be chief new revenue officer. Yeah. Unless unless under the chief revenue officer, I guess you have two. So so how's that going to work? If we're saying that repeat revenue is the responsibility of operations, are you saying that operations answers to the chief revenue officer? Well, yeah, the way you're just it oftentimes does in SaaS companies. The way you're you're describing operations is really the customer success function. It's got account managers, got your technical support, and so on. Your implementation, your onboarding. Uh, okay, you know, but but product, what about do, do you have product answering and and the engineering team? Do they all come? Do they all come up under chief revenue officer? If so, I guess that's fine. No, I mean typically engineering separated. Product development and engineering is separated. Yeah, I usually don't, rarely don't see that in SaaS companies under an operations function. Yeah, when I think of chief revenue officer, I think of someone who's responsible for growth. So I would argue, if 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 the goal is for that person to be driving the growth of the organization, I would argue, um, should 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 they be responsible for all revenue or just new revenue? Well, yeah, I th- well personally, I think they should be just for new revenue. Yeah, I agree. Because because I think it's it's easy to sort of get complacent yeah. <laughs> and saying, well, look, you know, our recurring revenue is, is growing at X rate and then miss on the new business. Yes. And uh, now someone listening to this may be thinking, ah, but what about what about churn? You know, what uh, we don't just want to be generating new revenue and churning it. And, the, and, and I think there might be a case in 
SaaS businesses and, and some other similar businesses where you're essentially trying to sell a subscription. This would apply to to simple distribution businesses too, I think, that there's there's an argument that sales shouldn't just be responsible for the first transaction. You it might make sense for sales to be responsible for getting the customer hooked. So, uh, you know, um, um, you might, in some environments, getting the first transaction is, is, means nothing. Like if you go to a customer and beg them for the opportunity to quote, they will let you quote. If you go to them and beg them for one transaction, they'll give you one transaction. It means nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, um, so we, we might, some of our clients, they won't give salespeople credit for a single transaction. They they talk about the, 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 they use the term first qualifying transactions. So we'll say, look, and, and until we've received three con- three consecutive transactions or three transactions from this client, you don't get to win that opportunity. And so they don't get paid any of their incentive pay until they've done the third transaction? Well, our clients don't pay incentive pay, but this, uh, salespeople in, on our watch, salespeople never get incentive pay. They get paid salaries, but um, they don't get in any recognition for the sale. Toward their goal. Okay. Yeah. Well, so... When you talk about your clients don't pay commission, let's let's dive into that because um, tell us about that. Well, I mean, uh, our whole approach is involves the sort of radical approach of division of labor to sales environments, just mm-hmm. like manufacturing, you know. And sure. and there used to be piece rate pay in production environments, but of course, piece rate pay disappeared when division of labor was applied in a principled way because. You know, if you imagine a manufacturing plant, you're not interested in trying to maximize, maximize individual productivity. You're interested in maximizing throughput of the plant as a whole. And in fact, an attempt an attempt to maximize individual productivity would do enormous damage to the thru- throughput of a plant. And the same thing would apply in a software development environment. If we said we want each salesperson to to check in as much code as possible, as many lines of code as possible every day, that, that that's not going to add up to a more productive environment. Um, what we need to do is to manage the environment to maximize the the, the rate at which new features get released to customers, not the number mm-hmm. of lines of codes that get written. Lines right. of codes that get written. Otherwise, all they're going to do is generate rework. So um, the same the same thing applies in sales environments. Um, when we strip away all responsibilities from salespeople, apart from selling conversations, they become it becomes a team sport. We have a promotions team that's generating ops. We have an engineering team that's that's working with salespeople on solution design and and budgets and proposals and so on. Um, and it it no longer makes sense to say, well, we're going to compensate members of this team on a piece rate based upon the assumption that we want them all to work as fast as possible. We don't. We're trying to maximize throughput for the for the team as a whole. Well, um, or that in a team environment is the message would be that why would we compensate the salespeople if other people play a, yeah, an equal role, let's say, in landing the opportunity? Yeah, I mean, some of our clients that sell sort of engineered solutions or products of some kind, the salesperson might do do five or six hours cumulatively of work to win a deal. Mm-hmm. But, but other folks, including the engineering team, might have done 100 hours. Uh and the engineering team could well contain some individuals whose market value is much higher than salespeople. So the, the idea that we're going to have a salesperson earning $300,000 a year and driving around in a shiny black Porsche, is it, it, it's just not going to fly well. And that's why in most sort of heavy engineering environments where we work, you know, we don't have to talk them out of paying commissions. They eliminated that years ago. 
because mm-hmm. uh, it's unconscionable. So I, I mean, we eliminate it, and it, and it annoys me. I even have to talk about it. It's it it's it should be one of the least controversial things we do. We eliminate it, and our position is that perform. If you're in sales, it's no different from any other role in the organization. Performance should be compulsory, not optional. If I yeah. decide I want to join an, an organization as a welder, you, you know, I I I would show up on my first day of work with my welding mask and my sticks, and uh, and. Uh, uh, my job would be to weld the parts as they move towards me, and uh, I should weld at the rate at which parts move towards me and no faster. Uh, um, if there's no welding for me to do, I shouldn't be wandering around the organization looking for things to weld. <laughs> and if there's work accumulating accru- accumulating upstream for me, I should probably weld a little bit faster to avoid becoming a bottleneck. And so downstream from the salesperson in your system that you implement with your clients is – Marketing, generating ops, upstream, upstream, yes, upstream, whatever, yeah, upstream, right? Yeah. Sorry. So, so my, our clients would would structure marketing similar to procurement in a manufacturing environment. Uh, that there's almost like a min max. It's not quite a min max configuration. Right. But there's sales salespeople salespeople look at queues of opportunities, and their salespeople's job is to assign activities to queue, to their queue of opportunities until individual opportunities to resolve to either one or lost. As soon as that happens, the opportunity drops out of the queue, and the very next day that queue has to be replenished. Right. So with an inside, in an inside sales environment, a typical salesperson will have 15 selling conversations a day, maybe, maybe 60 attempts, 15 selling conversations a day. That will result in them closing about 10 opportunities a day. Maybe they win one, lose nine. The percentage, the win rate will vary, but the the throughput is always roughly the same. It's always about ten ops per person per day. That means the job of marketing is to replenish salespeople's queues at the start of every day. So every day, each salesperson on average gets pushed ten new ops to replace the the ten they closed yesterday. And in the environments that you're working in with your clients, is so how does marketing achieve that predictability? Because there has to be a, ver- a, a variability in the quality of the ops that they they push into the sales so, using the, using yeah. the sort of a similar or conveyor belt type analogy yes. or metaphor. Yes. So we can't fix both. We can't fix quality and quantity in order. And we're, we're most definitely going to fix quantity. So that's non-negotiable. If you join a marketing team, you understand that you must replenish salespeople's opportunity queues every single day, come hell or high water. Otherwise you won't work there anymore or the whole bloody thing will be shut down and rebuilt. Um, but that's not that's not optional. So we have to allow for a, a variation in quality. Um, now, th- that should be expected though. Sales is probabilistic. There's no way of there's no way of it eliminating, uh, and nor would it be healthy to attempt to I- eliminate the variation in quality. If by quality we mean variation in win rate, um, I'm not sure oh, it's oh. even healthy to yeah. equate quality with win rate. No, um, I think there's, but I think there are. There's fit. I mean, that's that's something you can, on at least on a surf, surface level, you can have some control over. So, we have to start with the definition of opportunity. Um, if if you ask salespeople to define opportunity, they'll they'll think that they can define it easily, and then they discover that that they can't. It starts <laughs> to get a bit messy because, you know, salespeople do not want to define a sales opportunity as simply an opportunity to sell. They absolutely do not want to do that. Because they recognize if they define a sales opportunity as an opportunity to sell, 
there is no, there is never an excuse not for them to be busy. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I was talking to someone this morning. I said, well, how many, how many, it, 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 the guy was from an ad agency. I said, well, how many companies are there in your region that would be a type and a size where you would be interested in winning their account? He said, oh, probably about seven or 8,000. I said, well, of, of those seven or 8,000, how many of them are clients? He said, no, no, they're the ones who aren't clients. I said, oh, so seven or 8,000 sales opportunities for your salespeople. He said, oh, they don't see it that way. I said, well, hang on. Sales opportunity, to my mind, infers opportunity to sell. Uh, the reason they don't see it that way is they don't want to see it that way. But the, the executive why? team... Why doesn't the sellers want to see it that way? Because their life is much more comfortable if they only if they only attempt to sell things to people who are walking towards them waving money <laughs> true always the case yeah so it, it it's not the responsibility of the sales team to define the term sales opportunity it's the responsibility of the executive team and then us as members of the executive team we need to decide do we want to define words so as to make salespeople happy or to, do we define? Do we want to define words so as to model the true nature of reality? To allow language to model the true nature of reality, and the latter tends to be the more sensible approach to communication. Yeah, and, the least the least taken, but the most. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So if we say, well, an opportunity is exactly a sales opportunity, exactly that, an opportunity to sell, then then qualification to the extent that it should exist at all, which in my view is. Not, not at all, simply means approaching those organizations that are of a size and type uh, that they have some in a, a, a non-zero likelihood of purchasing in the indefinite future, and they are not already customers. Now, nobody has problems with qualification if that's all we mean by it. I, I mean, a junior marketing person can solve that problem in about eight minutes. You know, let's get the list of sick codes. Mm-hmm. Let's call up every. Let's get a list of every single organization in the marketplace with those sick codes. Let's remove the ones with less than a hundred employees, and then let's remove the ones that are already accounts. Okay, now we have eight thousand four hundred and fifty-six co- companies to go and sell to. The all of those are sales opportunities. Right, and you were saying about qualification, but if that's the case, you don't need to qualify. No, an eight-year-old could qualify them, but that's not what salespeople use the word qualification. For salespeople use qualification, and they try not to make this explicit because they understand that it wouldn't be received well if they made it explicit. But 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 you and I both know that salespeople. I think that you you and I both know that salespeople use the term qualification to differentiate between those prospects that are walking towards them and those prospects that are walking away from them. And their life will be a lot more comfortable if they sell to people who are walking towards them, approaching them with money in their hands. Mm-hmm. Which is why the two default qualification questions all over the world are, do you budget. have budget and when are you planning on purchasing? That's right. Budget and time frame, yes. Yeah. But we don't. when we're working with our clients, we don't want salespeople talking to prospects who are walking towards the organization with money in their hands, we would much rather that we will not, we, we will direct all of those people to customer service. We don't want salespeople to have anything to do with them. It's, 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 there's a very strong risk, a very big risk that if you allow salespeople to talk to those people, salespeople will actually talk some of them out of transacting. Mm-hmm. 
We want salespeople to be focused exclusively on the prospects who are walking away from them. Very, yeah, very interesting. Um, now, yeah. salespeople, if we tell salespeople that, they'll say, well, you mean you want me to cold call? To which I will say, well, if, you, if by cold call you mean, do I want you to talk to strangers, then the answer to the question is an absolute unequivocal yes, I want you to talk to strangers. And if you don't like talking to strangers, let me ask you a follow-up question. That's why the hell are you in sales in the first place? <laughs> now, uh, if salespeople have a concern that they, they will attempt to start hundreds of conversations with an extremely low strike rate, not of sales, but of, if, they will, if they will try unproductively to start large volumes of conversations and, and that will be soul destroying, then I have exactly the same concern. I agree with them absolutely. So yes, that's a concern. We have to figure out a solution to that. But the solution to that is not to avoid talking to strangers. What we have to do is to come up with a proposition that's compelling enough that strangers are prepared to talk to our salespeople. Mm -hmm. And then our salespeople have to grow the hell up and talk to strangers. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, yeah, there's always this issue of core reluctance, but it seems like in general, these days, at least some companies that I talk to is not a problem making calls. I mean, in some cases, it almost seems like, and this is, I think, have to be part two of a conversation because we're running out of time here today, but, you know, if it's, in some cases, seems like too many people they're talking to. And they're not discriminating enough. I mean, but what's the sort of interest is to get your feedback on that in the terms of qualification. It's like at some point you have to decide whether somebody's worth your time or not. Oh, okay. I see what you're getting. Yes, yes, yes. We Okay. We, we see that. We see salespeople. Uh, yes. We see salespeople um, who are not selling in any meaningful sense. They're having a perpetual conversation with, with, with the same pool of customers. And, and, and management needs to put a stop to that. I mean, sales salespeople need to operate in an environment where they're supervised. I mean, we address that problem in two ways. Then um, uh, three ways, probably. The first way that we address it is we say that we like everyone. This isn't new. We break the, the opportunity workflow into stages, and at each stage, the objective is to sell up to the next stage. Mm -hmm. And um, the salesperson at each stage should should be looking for a yes or a no not a maybe. So, uh, the, 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 right. and the result of that is that if I talk to you and, and, and I say, Andy, uh, can we schedule, a can we schedule a workshop with our engineering team where we can build a set of requirements that'll allow us to generate a proposal? And you say, yes, then, and we go ahead and schedule that. That's, that's a meaningful next activity, right? Mm -hmm. it gets, yeah. It gets scheduled in, <laughs> It gets scheduled in the calendar. The activity appears in CRM, and your supervisor can sit with, down with you and look at it and say, "Yep, Andy, that's well done. We've progressed this opportunity to the next stage. That's a meaningful next activity scheduled." But if you look in salespeople's calendars against, if you look at the, the the upcoming activities against ops, you will see a note to call someone back in three months. Like, mm -hmm. why the hell are we calling them back in three months? What, what you know, there's a there's a, a note in there to call the prospect on. The, the the 5th of March. Why the 5th of March? Is it because the 5th of March is three months from the last time you talked to them or is it because something specific is happening on March 5? And supervisors need to put salespeople on the spot, ideally in, in front of their peers and say, what exactly is happening on March 5? Why is that call booked for them? And, and, and it's likely that the salesperson simply got reluctant agreement from the prospect who's too polite to say piss off 
right. that they can call them back in three months. And that the, uh, super management should be responsible for shutting that kind of malarkey down. It's not it's not sensible. It's not useful. So um, uh, sh- sh- you should be auditing salespeople's activities in CRM to make sure that act- that pending activities against opportunities are meaningful. And if they're not meaningful, you want to flush that out and you want to tell salespeople to grow the hell up and close that opportunity is lost. Yep. And the, the, so, so supervision and proper usage of CRM are two of the ways we solve that. The other way we solve it is we choke the release of ops to salespeople. So salespeople only get new ops when they close old ops. And we simultaneously enforce a minimum volume of selling conversations a day. So if you're in an environment where you have to have 15 selling conversations a day because <laughs> it's a necessary condition. Keep the assembly line conveyor going, yes. Yeah, if that's not negotiable, you have to do that. And you are reluctant to close opportunities. You can you can kind of string you can string yourself along for a little while by simply, you know, making those call me back in three month type activities. But but sooner or later that's going to fail, and you're going to find yourself sitting in a big hole with no with with no one to talk to, because every single one of your opportunities has requested a call back in three months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. At that point, you're going to be desperate for opportunities, and and your your supervisor is going to say, "No, uh, um, I'm not. I'm no Andy. I'm not going to release any more ops to you because you're still you're still sitting on a queue of 80 ops. You better close some." So by having a one out one in rule, um, it, uh, it balances salespeople's reluctance to abandon ops mm-hmm. against their desire for new ops. I like that. One and in one keeps, out. Yep, keeps it keeps things healthy. I, I mean, anyone who's released uh, anyone who's released ops indiscriminately to salespeople, if if salespeople are off, operate in an environment where there are plenty of opportunities, you quickly see salespeople sitting on two or three hundred opportunities because they don't like to close them. They like to be like a chicken sitting on hundreds <laughs> of eggs just in case one of them hatches. Yeah, that's one of my bugaboos. So, um, well, we were going to actually that was going to lead to a topic we I originally planned to, to talk about. I didn't ask any of the questions I had planned, which was. Uh, a really interesting article you'd written about uh, deal flow versus conversion rates, but we're going to have to have you come back and talk about that because we've we've run out of time. So, um, as always, it's so much fun to talk with you. So, tell people how to connect with you and learn more about what you're doing. Yeah. So, uh, my blog is salespressesengineering.net. Um, my the company website is ballistics with an X B A W L I S T I X. And the book I wrote is called The Machine. If you go to Amazon and type in The Machine, it's got a picture of an oil can on the front. You can't miss it. You can't miss it. And I highly recommend people read it. It's uh, it's a different perspective that you need to have about how to make sales successful. So, um, Justin, like I said, always a pleasure. And uh, we'll do this again shortly. Excellent. Thank you, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Justin Rothmarsh, for sharing his wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.